The Lymphoma Voices podcast brings you a series of conversations around topics of interest for people affected by lymphoma, the fifth most common cancer in the UK. Hello, my name is Anne Hook and I work at Lymphoma Action and I'm delighted to be joined today by Manil Supersinger. Welcome Manil and thank you for joining us today. Could you tell us a little bit about your, your job title and where you work? Thanks, Anne, and thank you, uh, Lymphoma Action, for having me. I'm a clinical lecturer in PET imaging and an honorary consultant radiologist based at King's College London at the University and Guy's and St. Thomas's NHS Trust. And uh, my interest in lymphoma really came about from my first job at Oxford uh, University Hospitals NHS Trust, where I was helping support the multidisciplinary team meeting where we discussed all cases of lymphoma, and I provided the input in regards to these PET-CT scans, which we used uh, at various stages uh, of patients' uh, journeys in their, their conditions of lymphoma and different types of lymphoma. And so my major role is looking at these scans and providing reports to help with the treatment of people with lymphoma. Manil, we're delighted you've joined us today because we receive a lot of calls from people asking about scans. So I wonder whether we can cover some of those questions. But I wanted to start with quite a basic question, which is why are scans used? So I think if we think about why scans are used, it's to help with the treatment of your lymphoma. We use scans right at the beginning. And that's sometimes to figure out that is there a problem or isn't there a problem? So someone may come and see their doctor and they're saying, I've noticed a lump in their neck. Uh, we may not have yet taken a sample of tissue, but the doctor may say, well, shall we organize a scan to figure out is there a lump in just one side of the neck or are there lots of lumps or these lymph nodes? Um, are they elsewhere in the body? So it's kind of getting a feel for what are we dealing with, setting the scene so we know how far has it spread? And where has it spread to? And are there any complications that we may think about? So it's kind of giving us a bigger picture and a fuller picture right at the onset. The scan will then help us target where to get the sample of tissue that we can then either confirm a diagnosis of lymphoma or say, actually, it isn't lymphoma. It's nothing to worry about. And then let's say we've got a diagnosis of lymphoma. We can still use scans once you've started some form of treatment, be that chemotherapy or even radiotherapy, we can use the scan to help us give a bit of information about how's the treatment working? Is the treatment shrinking the lymphoma, which is a great result? Or is it actually you know, staying the same? Or is it actually maybe getting a bit larger, in which case it helps us decide maybe we need to change the treatment we have? And then let's say you've finished your course of treatment. Well, then the scan can again help to say, compared to what we started with at the beginning, what does it look like now after we've completed it? Ideally, and that would bring me a lot of pleasure to say, actually, the lymphoma is completely gone. The treatment has worked successfully and we can give some good news. That's not always the case because we can still pick up instances where we think everything's gone well, but actually there might be something there that's still growing or still active. And then that will give us information about, okay, maybe we need to try some more chemotherapy or some radiotherapy to try and get that last bit of tumor out of the way. So. We can use scans throughout that patient journey. Yeah. I mean, you've made it clear it has a very important role from diagnosis to treatment decision making to the end of treatment as well. Tell us a little bit more detail about the types of scans there are. I think all of them can be used in various roles in lymphoma management. 
but maybe let's talk about the common ones. Let's say if someone presents with a lump in their neck, you'll be able to feel that, the doctor will be able to feel that. So the most logical test to do is something called an ultrasound scan. So an ultrasound scan uses sound waves. It's the same kind of scan that we use when um, women are pregnant with babies. We put a bit of gel on the tummy and then use a, what we call a transducer or a probe. And we use sound waves to kind of create an image. And so that would be the most logical test to do if someone's got a lump in their neck because it's very easy to get to. So you can then use that ultrasound probe to kind of decide, does it look like an enlarged lymph node? Does it look abnormal or does it look normal? And actually at that same sitting, it's very easy to then try and put a needle into that lymph node to get a sample of tissue to then send it to the pathologists to look under the microscope to tell us what exactly is wrong with this lymph node, let's say. So that's probably the, the first test that I would talk about. And importantly, that doesn't use any form of radiation. And radiation is something we think about when we're doing imaging because radiation can theoretically cause harm to our natural cells in our body. And so we don't want to use radiation unless we really have to. Um, I guess the next most easily accessible test is an x-ray, so like a chest x-ray. And that, again, is something that's a very simple, quick and easy test to do. It does use radiation, but the amount of radiation is very, very small. It's actually much less than the amount of radiation that we get just by living in the UK every year. So just to put radiation into context and hopefully reassure people. So an x-ray, a chest x-ray would be really good because sometimes with lymphoma, people just feel unwell, but they might feel a sense of tightness in their chest. And we know that there are lymph nodes within the chest that can grow. And a chest x-ray is a pretty good starting point to see whether there is something really abnormal or, or if it's just simply normal uh, within the chest. But it's a good starting point with minimal radiation and easily accessible. But if there's nothing on the chest x-ray, that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't anything going on, which is then when you move on to the more complex uh, imaging tests like a CT scan, which is basically a set of x-rays. But what you're doing is doing a set of x-rays that circles around the body, and then you get a picture of the body by creating various slices of the body, which we can then look at on a computer screen. And that kind of gives us a nice three-dimensional view of the whole body and allows us to see much better detail within the body rather than an x-ray, which is basically your superimposing images from front to back. Here you can actually see real detail. And that gives us the best description of what's going on inside the body. The downside to a CT scan is that it uses more radiation than an x-ray. If you imagine the figure of about 2.5 millisieverts is the figure we quote for every year that we live in the UK. That's how much radiation we get as human beings. A CT scan would be about four years worth of radiation that you would have acquired by living in the UK. So it's a higher radiation dose, but the scan can take place within a few seconds. So it's done really quickly and it gives you really good information about what's inside. You then go to the MRI scan. So that stands for magnetic resonance imaging. The benefit of that scan, it doesn't use radiation. So it's really, really safe. Uh, there are some issues with people who have problems with claustrophobia. And also, if you've got a pacemaker, there may be an issue, but most pacemakers that people are implanted these days for problems with irregular rhythms in the heart, they're actually MRI safe. So you can actually still have an MRI scan. The problem with the MRI scanner, it takes a bit of time. You know, we're talking probably half an hour to 40 minutes, but again, gives you really good detail about the insides of the human body. So real good contrast. And then we get to PET and PET-CT. 
PET-CT we use a lot in lymphoma and it's really revolutionized the management of lymphoma. And it combines the aspects of CT scanning, which I've already talked about. Um, so we're really using information about size and shape and anatomy. And we combine that with PET, which stands for positron emission tomography. That's using radioactivity. And you think about, we've heard about nuclear power stations and how we use radioactive materials to generate energy. They're the same kind of compounds, but much, much less high levels of radiation. So we're using very safe levels of radiation and we're linking it to glucose. And what we do is we use radioactive glucose. We inject into a person's vein and we follow where that glucose goes. Cancer cells like sugar. And so we exploit that phenomenon to identify where have cancer cells gone to. So we're combining anatomy with function to get this kind of two bits of information in one sitting. And we know that that approach is better than just doing a CT scan on its own. Hopefully that kind of explains it in not too complex a way, but there are a lot of scans that we can use, but there's a right scan for the right time. Thank you for that explanation. And obviously it goes from quite straightforward an x-ray and an ultrasound to very complicated, sophisticated equipment used. Um, but can I ask you, can lymphoma be diagnosed without a scan? Uh, yes, it can. So with a scan, we can only really tell you where things look abnormal. We can tell you that this is not what we'd expect in the normal human body. What I can't tell you is what's actually going on. Is it because of infection? Is it because of lymphoma? Is it because of a different type of cancer? And so even though we can suggest on a scan by looking at the distribution of findings that, okay, this could be lymphoma, I'm not 100%. So the only way to be 100% is actually to take a sample of tissue and send that to the histopathologist to look under the microscope where they will do a whole series of different tests to look at those cells. And that will be the way to tell whether this person has or hasn't got lymphoma. So you could then come up with a scenario where if you're in clinic and you've, you've seen a surgeon and you've got a lump that they can feel, they could actually put a needle in in clinic uh, without having had a scan because they're confident that they can feel the lump and mm. then send that straight to the histopathologist and you could get the lymphoma diagnosis without the need of a scan. Now that's not often done because people prefer to do things with the assistance of scans to help guide the needle going into the right place. So theoretically, yes, you can get an answer of lymphoma without a scan, but more often than not, people will get a diagnosis of lymphoma with the assistance of a scan. Can I ask you what type of equipment would typically be used if you want to take a sample or remove a part for a biopsy? Sure. So what we want to do is to avoid people needing a general anesthetic to be put to sleep, to have a lymph node resected by a surgeon. What we try and do is actually do things in the radiology department and by using local anesthetic and by using needles to take samples of tissue. The commonest method that you'd use to gain a sample of tissue would be under ultrasound guidance, uh, using an ultrasound probe to identify where the lump is. And that would be with the help of the person who's come for the appointment because you know your body best, so you'll be able to tell us where exactly that lump is. We then put the ultrasound probe on it to confirm, yep, that's where we want to go. We kind of assess the nearby structures to make sure when there are no 
blood vessels or nerves, or at least if there are them, we know to watch out for them. Uh, and then the process would be making sure that you are happy to proceed with the mm -hmm. sample of tissue. So making sure that you understand the reasons we're doing it, the risks, the benefits, and that you understand that at any point you can refuse. In no way are you forced to go through with this. But let's assume you have given consent. We then put some local anesthetic in to numb the skin and the tissue just a bit deeper to the skin so that when you're having the sample of tissue taken, at most you would feel is a bit of pushing and prodding, but you shouldn't feel pain. And then it would be, you'd hear maybe a couple of clicks, uh, which would mean that the sample of tissue has been taken and then they would be sent off to the labs. And then what we would do is uh, put a plaster on the area. You'd probably have to stay in the department maybe for 10 to 15 minutes, make sure there's no big bruise that's developed or there's no immediate complication like bleeding. And then you should be able to continue with your normal daily life. And the whole idea is trying to make it as... Um, we call it minimally invasive as possible. We get calls from people who have spotted a lump in their neck that's been persistent. They go to their GP and they get referred to have a scan. And on the day of the appointment, suddenly the, the swelling has gone down. If there is a lymphoma there, will it still be detected if that happens? Personally, if I was a person with a lump that's gone down, I'd be reassured. Mm. That isn't usually how cancer behaves you know lymphoma is a blood cancer most cancers tend to grow and grow and grow but there are instances where lumps can shrink and we know that certain types of lymphoma certainly the types that are what we call low grade or indolent they can come and go so going back to the question if the lumps got smaller well it would make it more difficult to try and get a sample of tissue what might then be the case is we might have to wait a bit uh, we might do a scan to see, is there another place that we could try and get a sample of tissue? And so that a CT scan might be done then to see, is there another place that we could maybe get a sample of tissue? Because we're still worried that this person has lymphoma. And let's say there isn't another place and all the nodes have gone down. Well, we could be dealing with not lymphoma. We could be dealing with a lymphoma that comes and goes. And I think that then you might kind of take a more pragmatic approach and say, OK, I will, let's see you in three months. Uh, but do get in touch with us if things change and we can see you earlier. And if it comes again, then we'll try and take a sample of tissue at that stage. I know that radiologists are core members of the multidisciplinary team meeting or MDT. Can you explain what role you have in the diagnosis and management, um, planning and delivery of treatment? What's, what's your part in that? Sure. Um, sometimes we have a joke that we're the most important members in the team because without us, <laughs> nothing would happen but there's a mutual respect in the multidisciplinary team meeting because we know that every person has a, a specific role to play so from an imaging point of view we are involved from the beginning right through to the end and also let's say if people have been cured of their lymphoma and maybe unfortunately it has come back we start the process again so we would be asked to present the scans of a person where the um Hematologists, more often than not, would be concerned that this person has lymphoma. We would then present the scan saying, well, we think the lymphoma has spread to these areas in the body. We talk about a process called staging, where we talk about whether the lymphoma is one side of the diaphragm or another side of the diaphragm or both sides of the diaphragm. And that kind of gives us an idea of how far the lymphoma has spread and we do know that the more the lymphoma has spread across the body the more difficult it will be to get this person to be fully cured of lymphoma 
and ideally using that scan we've also helped identify where's the best site to get some tissue to confirm that this is lymphoma we would then probably repeat the scanning process during chemotherapy or radiotherapy to help guide the clinician as to how has the treatment worked? Has the lymphoma responded to the treatment we've given this person? And ideally, we'll give a real thumbs up and say, yep, this lump, which measured five centimeters before we started treatment, I can barely see it now on the scan, which means the lymphoma is all in all gone. And then what we might say is then, okay, um, let's say in a case of Hodgkin's lymphoma, and we're using a PET-CT scan, if we've given a really good result after two cycles of that chemotherapy, we can actually say to the doctors, well, you can continue with chemotherapy, but maybe you don't need to continue with one of the chemotherapeutic agents because we know from our studies that you can continue with three out of the four rather than four out of the four, and you'll do equally well. So we can really help change what we do even during. Ideally, what we're doing is supporting what we already know from the clinic visits that hopefully you've visited the clinic and you're telling your hematologist, your oncologist, I'm feeling great. The scan can be used to confirm that good news at the end of treatment. And as I said at the beginning, yes, sometimes lymphomas come back. But again, we can then reset the pathway by reassessing and saying, okay, we think the lymphomas come back. Where has it come back? Has it come back at the sites that it was at the beginning? Or has it come back at different sites? And then we'll do the same process again during treatment, after treatment. And we can help use it to change treatment whenever things aren't quite going right. One thing I wanted to ask is at follow-up, are people likely to have a scan at follow-up? Um, I think it depends on where you are in the country, depends on your clinician, depends on you as a person, because remember that when you're in clinic, it's a two-way decision. It's not just a one-way decision that the doctor tells you what to do. If you are concerned, you are fully within your rights, and it is. I personally would encourage it to express your anxiety if you want to know what's it looking like on my scan? You know, one of my roles is to justify the use of radiation, particularly for CT scans and PET scans. If a hematologist says to me, could I do a scan as part of follow-up for this patient? And they're a bit anxious. I would say, well, I, if I put myself in that person's shoes, and this is going to provide reassurance for the person who's got the lymphoma, but also the doctor treating them, well, I think I can do a service in that way. So yes, we can use scans as part of follow-up. But that's with a word of warning, because if you do the scan in a person who is completely well, so you don't think that this person has any signs of lymphoma, if you do a scan, the scan can either suggest wrongly that the person may have lymphoma and get that wrong, because when you do the biopsy of a lump, it's not lymphoma. And so we've created unnecessary worry and anxiety, or we can actually miss things because we don't know where to look at correctly. So with most practices, when you're using imaging tests, it's very much reliant upon the information that we gauge from the doctors who've seen the person. And the best use of imaging really is if you as a hematologist are telling us that, listen, I'm worried about this person, they've got symptoms that I'm worried about lymphoma. Well, then that's going to make that scan that we do much more important and more likely that we're going to get the right answer. So it's about doing the right test at the right time in the right conditions. And I think one of the messages we hear from nurses regularly is that it's very important for people to know when their body feels right and also more importantly to recognize when it doesn't feel right and that's the time to flag up with your nurse. Absolutely. The studies have shown that that is the most sensitive and most accurate way of telling us whether the lymphoma might be coming back or not.
You mentioned that there's more radiation in CT and PET. Is there a maximum amount of radiation anyone can have? There isn't a maximum amount of radiation because the way that we justify the use of radiation in these scans is through legislature that exists in the UK. It's called the Ionising Radiation Medical Exposure Regulations. And that doesn't set an upper limit of how much radiation uh, we can use, because if we need to use radiation to get an answer that will help a person with treatment or investigation of a medical condition, well, then we need to do that. The benefit outweighs the risks. And that's what the practice of medicine and using these scans and ionizer radiation is all about. It's benefit versus risk. And if we are going to use radiation, we use this principle called ALARA, as low as reasonably acceptable or ALARP as low as reasonably possible. And that's because of the theoretical risk that because radiation can harm our normal cells, it can harm the DNA that forms kind of our genetic code in our cells. It could theoretically result in a cancer developing because of the radiation that we give. Now, if I want to put that into context, talk about a PET-CT scan, which is probably around the similar dose now to a, a, a CT scan of the neck and the chest and the tummy and the pelvis. It's about one in a thousand. So for every scan that we do, it might cause a cancer in one in a thousand cases. And if you put that into context that actually now the start figure is that 50% of us are going to get cancer in our lifetime. So by an extra scan, we're making it 50.0001%. And as I said, it's theoretical. So there's no study as yet that has conclusively proven that medical imaging causes cancer. There are some studies that suggest that it might be the case, and that's more so in younger people. When we're younger, we know that our cells are growing, our bodies are growing. And so the cells that are dividing and creating, you know, bigger bones, bigger muscles, etc., are more sensitive to the effects of radiation. But that's not to say we underestimate radiation, but it's also to reassure you that we're keeping doses really, really low. With um, PET scans, people are given a radioactive form of sugar. Are there any implications around this? Can they be given to children, for example? And if you have this type of scan, is there any safety issues for going home and being around your family? We do scans, these FDG scans or PET scans, uh, which we inject radioactive sugar in both children and adults. But because children are smaller, we use less of this radioactive sugar compared to an adult. So yes, we, we do it in children and adults. The amount of radioactivity is a significant dose. It's not going to do harm to the person. But from a personal point of view, so if you've been injected red radioactivity, after you've had your PET scan, you'll be given some advice. So radioactivity um, has this unique property that if you start with 100% when you inject it, after a certain time, it would reduce to 50%. After that same amount of time again, it would reduce to 25%. After that same amount of time, it will be down to 12.5%, and then my maths gets a little bit tricky. But that's something called a half-life. So radioactive sugar is linked to a radioactive atom called fluorine-18, and that has a half-life of about 110 minutes, which is, let's say, two hours. But every two hours, it will reduce by 50%. So we tend to say, once you've got to about five of those half-lives, so that's 10 hours, you're absolutely safe. 
going to be actually a bit quicker than that because our kidneys get rid of the radioactive sugar. So we tell people when they're leaving, if you can drink plenty of water and flush out the radioactive sugar, well, it's going to get rid of it much quicker. But our general advice is around 10 to 12 hours. You're okay to get public transport. You're okay to get in a taxi, but try and avoid close contact with particularly young individuals. So babies, pregnant women. And then once you're out of that period, everything's okay. Are there any types of scans that are safe if you're a pregnant woman with a suspected lymphoma? Yes, that's one of the most tricky situations to face because, you know, a lot of this podcast, we've talked about CT scans and PET CT scans. You know, those involve what we call ionizing radiation and potential that it can damage the DNA, which forms our cells. And that's of greatest risk when the baby is growing, particularly in the what we call the first trimester. So we basically avoid using those types of imaging tests in those situations. So you have to think of alternatives and you look to the alternatives that don't use ionizing radiation. And those will be ultrasound. So if you can assess the the, the kind of what we call superficial areas that you can feel, that you can touch, such as the neck, the armpits, the groins, ultrasound is very good. So then MRI actually comes into its own because that is non-ionizing. There are some side effects of MRI with regards to increasing the temperature within the body only by a degree or so, but that's still within the normal limits and within safety limits. That tends to be the modality. If you want a kind of whole body assessment of, let's say someone has lymphoma that we've got from a biopsy from the neck, how far is it extended? Well, let's do an MRI scan. And that would be only if you really want to start treatment really, really quickly. But let's say it's a lymphoma that's growing slowly. What you might do is then say, let's get mum through this pregnancy. Let's deliver the baby safely. Then let's do the better tests to like the CT scan, the PET CT scan to get the best idea of where things are. Are there any other cases where you can't give a scan, whether it's people are claustrophobic? What other instances might there be? Yeah, so maybe if I start with a CT scan, first of all. So we tend to give something called iodinated contrast or IV contrast, IV standing for intravenous. So you'd have a cannula, a plastic uh, needle put into your arm and you would have this contrast injected. And that's really to help give us the best detail on the scans possible. Now, if we can't get access because maybe you've had lots of rounds of chemotherapy and your veins have been used a lot and they're basically really sore, That's a difficulty that we'll face. And if we can't give you contrast, well, it's not the end of the world, but it means that the scan that we do is, in business sense, suboptimal. So it's not the best. Mm. So we might not be able to pick up where the lymphoma has spread, as well as if we had given IV contrast. So that's one issue. Another issue is that this IV contrast that we give is it got rid of by the body, by the kidneys. So with people who've got problems with their kidneys, That can mean that the um, contrast isn't got rid of by the kidneys, but actually what we worry about is that the contrast has the potential to damage the kidneys even more. And what we don't want to do is to worsen a situation. And so what you might do is then say, well, the kidney function in this person is not great. Is there an alternative that we can do? And then the final scenario is if you've had an allergic reaction to the iodinated contrast, you know, some people have really bad reactions So we can get around some of those things by using a PET CT scan. The PET CT scan also needs access to a vein, but we don't necessarily need to put a plastic needle in. What we can just do is put a tiny needle in. We can get that scan done. So that's a positive. 
because we don't tend to use IV contrast in PET CT scans. We just inject the radioactive sugar. So that can get over some of the problems. Mm. Um, you can do that scan safely in people with kidneys that aren't working at all, in fact. Um, and you mentioned claustrophobia. That's something that we can't get round much because that's up to the person. A CT scan, I liken it to a polo mint. Um, a PET CT scan, I would liken it closer to a polo mint than an MRI scan, which is more like a tunnel. And most people have claustrophobia and that fear of being closed in because you're going into a tunnel. So things that we can do to help is we can maybe get you to come and see the scanner before you have your appointment and see what do you reckon do you think you can do this mm. we can take talk you through the whole process from beginning to end if that's what you want to know um, we can point you in the direction of information leaflets that talk you through every step of the process uh, we can point in the direction of informative videos and that might help you kind of understand what's going to happen and hopefully reassure you we tend to avoid people coming and having sedatives because what that means is then that they need somebody at the other end to help them get home. Now, you may want to come with a loved one for support. That's absolutely fine. But, you know, if you're sedated, then you, they might need to help you. And thinking about the radiation aspect, that means they need to get close to you. So they're getting unnecessary doses. So those are the things we try and avoid if at all possible. But again, if the person needs the scan, we will try and pull out all stops to get the scan done because that's only going to help them. We get asked a lot about what you can actually see on the scan. Yes. Yeah, so um, when I report these scans, I feel a bit like Superman with my X-ray vision because I can see everything inside the human body. So we can see detail to about half a millimetre in size in every bit of the body, depending on which bit of the body we've scanned. So part of our training as radiologists is to actually know about human anatomy and knowing it in detail. Part of the challenge is knowing that all of us are different on the outside, all of us are different on the inside as well, and knowing that there's a huge variety of normal on the inside. The old adage is you need to know what normal looks like before you can start calling what abnormal looks like. So in the chest, we can see the heart, the lungs, the vessels that come out of the heart. We can see the bones, the skeleton. When we get down beneath the diaphragm, we can see the liver, the kidneys, the spleen, the adrenals, the bowel, one of the, the, the benefits is that we, you can tell a lot by shape, by size, and that's on a CT scan. But you can then with the PET CT scan, you can take it a bit further by telling about whether a structure takes up radioactive sugar, which suggests that there are cells that are using sugar, meaning that the cells are alive versus a structure that, let's say on a CT scan, I can't tell you if it's scar tissue or active tumor, but on the PET CT scan, there's no sugar whatsoever. And actually that tells me that there are no cells in that bit of tissue using sugar, which means that those cells are scar tissue. That means that the lymphoma has gone. And that's really how PET CT scans have revolutionized lymphoma management. How long typically does it take to report on images? It depends on each individual, but we have benchmarks in the NHS that we try and kind of reach. You know, it's no point in us reporting two scans in four hours because that means the waiting list is going to get longer and longer. But nor do you want to rush a scan so that you're reporting a scan in five minutes because then you're probably not given due care and attention, particularly with respect to a PET CT scan, which is a scan that is starting just below the level of the eyes and going right down to your thighs. And we're talking, you know, on average, we're looking at over 500 images alone. So, you know, that takes time to look at it and looking at each structure and 
We also have to look at previous imaging. So perhaps the person had a previous PET CT scan because this might be a case of the person's started chemotherapy. So then we need to compare and contrast how have things changed between before treatment and during or after treatment. So that takes time. So encompassing all of that process, the kind of benchmark that we aim for is about half an hour to report a scan. Now, you as a radiologist are interpreting the scans, but there are other people involved in this. Can you clarify who does what in this sort of chain of work? Yes, I can. So radiologist is me. And so my role is to look at the images. So I'm a doctor. So I've gone to medical school for five, six years, and I was a junior doctor for about three or four years. And then I did my training in radiology, which took me six years. And then I became a consultant. So I think about 11 to 12 years in total. And I look at the images and I use my knowledge of medicine to then interpret those images to come up with an answer. So that's based on the history that's been given to me. So the hematologist will say, I've got a 70 year old person who's got lumps in their neck. I think this is a lymphoma. Can you tell me where is it? And I will go, it's here, here, here and here. And I think this is a certain type of lymphoma and it fits with what you said. So that would be my job. Without people called radiographers, I would not be able to do my job. So the radiographers, and also we have people called nuclear medicine technologists. So the radiographers are the people who, and technologists are the people who actually operate the scanners. So they are the people you will meet if you are coming for a scan. And they will explain everything from beginning to end. They are your point of contact and your friend during that bit of the journey. They are the experts in operating the scans and getting the best pictures because the best pictures means I get the best information to be able to come up with the right answers. So they are fundamentally important. How are they different from me? Well, they are not doctors. So they have come through either the school of radiography or another route. So they're highly qualified individuals, but they've done degrees that are not medical degrees. But their knowledge about scans, about radiation protection is equal to us as radiologists. So we're very much a team effort. And then finally, then radiotherapists. So therapy means treatment. So radiotherapists are healthcare professionals. They're not doctors, but they're going to be the people. So you have radiotherapy radiographers. They're going to be the people who operate the radiotherapy scanners, the ones that give you higher doses of x-rays to kill the cancer cells. And again, they're going to be the point of call who will be, you'll be seeing if you're having radiotherapy, you'll have what we call fractions. So they will be the people who will get you onto the scanner and then line you up and then give you that fraction and then you're off on your way. Are there times when you have a scan and there's no conclusive answer to it? And if so, do you then tend to consult with colleagues on it or would you more likely do a rescan? You know, as an individual, you want to give the answer, right? You want to be definitive in your answer. You want to be able to then progress the person through their journey as quickly as possible, because any kind of uncertainty then means probably more tests to be done, which then will ultimately delay starting of treatment. But there are instances where I don't know. There's a certain limit to what a test can tell us, but there's always another test, ideally, that may be able to answer that question better. And so it's thinking about different tests, different approaches to answer a question. And yeah, my my first port of call would be phone a friend or in our hospitals. We actually have this kind of messaging service, not quite WhatsApp, but on our system that we look at our scans, we have an ability to send a link to the scan that we can then get expertise. Let's say if there's something unusual in the lungs, I will then ask one of my radiologist colleagues who's an expert in looking at the lungs. Can you have a look? Mm -hmm. 
sometimes even with us as radiologists trying to come up with an answer, we can't come up with the answer. We might then look at blood tests. We might look at what tests that has this person had already. And so then actually then the best course of action is to bring that case for discussion at the MDT, the multidisciplinary team meeting, where hopefully the doctor who's looked after the patient and who requested the scan probably has a bit more information that they may have not have told us or may have just come to light. And then we can then start putting two and two together and going, ah, that makes sense because that looks like, ah, that person's had previous surgery before. Fine. That's Mm. nothing to worry about. Mm. Sometimes even that doesn't help. And then it's a case of, right, what do we do next? Let's just repeat the scan in three months and let's see what happens. And more often than not, these nodules then disappear and we can go, actually that was nothing to worry about and sometimes time is the only way that we can use uh, as our friend to help sort out some of these difficult situations. The report that you make as a result of the scan is that shared with the patient and if so by whom? At the current time no it's not shared with the patient but it is shared with the person who requested the scan and that often is going to be the doctor who is looking after your care they would will request the scan because they feel that that scan will help. So I will then issue a report and the report would include why we did the scan, when we did the scan, other bits of information like how much of the radioactivity, the radioactive sugar did we put into you. We write this report where we talk about, I've seen this, I've seen that, I've not seen this, the rest of it's normal. And it's actually the, the last paragraph and it's what we call the interpretation or the conclusion. And that's the most important bit, because that is where we're putting together what we've seen on the scan and interpreting it in light of all the information we've got to hand to come up with an answer. That document, that legal document, which is the um, report, tends to only go between me who writes it and the clinician who requested the scan. But that's not to say that a person who's having their lymphoma treated can't ask for copies of their scans. And if that is the case, you can either approach the scanning center where you had the scans and we can put that on a CD. If you wanted copies of your notes, you would then probably have to approach the doctor who's looking after your care. But I would say that a lot of that is not often in a very understandable format. That would be the job of the doctor to then decipher all that code to then break it down into the letter that you would get a copy of saying the scan showed, let's say, complete metabolic response, which means that your lymphoma has been cured. Now, you've touched on this already, but I want to ask you yeah. whether you'd share with me what you enjoy about your role and what's particularly satisfying about it. OK, so what do I enjoy about my role? Well, I, I guess, why did I get into radiology? Well, I got into radiology because the thing that really excited me about medicine was that start of the whole process of someone comes into hospital. They've got a complaint that they're telling about and we're now our job is to find out what's going on. And I I always liken to being a detective. And I feel that particularly with PET CT, I'm like the super duper detective because I'm putting together all the bits of information, including all the previous scans to come up with an answer. So I feel like it's the best job in that sense. And I feel a real great sense of pride when I can say I know what it is. And now I can give you clarity. I can give you purpose. I can give you direction to the clinical colleague and you've got the answer. And, uh, you know, I'm here to help you later on if there are any other problems that arise along the way. So I think that's what I enjoy most about um, radiology. Mm. And I think the, the, the job as well, it's variety, you know, that, that old adage variety is the spice of life. I think that is absolutely true. I mean, I've been doing this for eight years now and every day is a learning experience. Um, I'm still learning stuff about PET-CT and trying to translate and transfer that knowledge to younger colleagues who are training. 
it is a bit of a, a sad story because I'm scanning people with cancer, right? So mm -hmm. that is a sad story. But I guess the only way I can cope with that is because I'm seeing images of skeletons and bodies. I think if I did meet the person, I would be an absolute wreck because I've scanned, you know, 30 people with cancer and each of them with their own different story to tell that may be a good story, maybe a bad story. But and I have to somehow dissociate myself from that. Otherwise, I, yeah, I don't think I'd be able to mentally cope with that. So and that's part of why we don't see patients as part of my day job, which is a negative as well as a positive, is that if I did see patients, I don't think I could report all of these scans having to break bad news, perhaps. But by not seeing people, then at least I can be objective in my uh, assessment of the scan and give the most honest answer. Mm. Um, so, yeah. And my final question to you yes. is if there was one message you could give to people with lymphoma, what would that be? I've had a personal experience with my aunt, but she had a diagnosis of splenic villus lymphoma in Sri Lanka. And she lived with lymphoma for 14, 15 years. And she managed to travel the world, came here to England. We went to Sri Lanka and she coped with it and lived her life. And I'd say, having seen loved ones with it and people with it, I've always said, try and stay as positive as you can. It's a massive challenge. It's a massive um, shock to the, the human body, to your system to your family, to your friends when that diagnosis comes about. But if you can stay as positive as possible throughout your journey, and I cannot but believe that if you are positive during your chemotherapy journey or radiotherapy journey, that will only act in a beneficial way. And yes, you will have highs and lows, but try and stay as positive as you can and always keep talking to people. Don't keep those um, feelings locked up. Try and um, share if you're worried, disconcerted, anxious, talk to people. The bottom line for me is stay positive. Manil, it's been absolutely fascinating, really enlightening for me. And thank you very much for, for taking the time to talk to me today. Really appreciate it. It's, it's been a pleasure, Anne, and thank you, Lymphoma Action, as well, for uh, um, inviting me on today. For more information about lymphoma and the support we can offer to people affected by the condition, please visit the Lymphoma Action website at www lymphoma-action.org.uk. Lymphoma Action. Inform. Support. Connect.